0: We're going to continue on in our series, Joy, in the Book of Philippians this morning. And uh, before we do, I want to just welcome my special guests. These are my relatives over there in the corner. Uh, that's my um, cousin, Lisa, and uh, that's her husband, Mark, and one of their sons, Andrew, next to them. And so uh, it brings me great joy to have you guys here with us here today. They're visiting from up north. Um Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and actually we're going to just look at the first four verses this morning. We're going to look at uh, the rest a little bit later on, but I I wanted to focus specifically on the topic of church unity this morning. Uh, This is our next passage as we preach through the epistle of Philippians, and so church unity is an enormously important topic that Uh, It was important to Paul, it was important to Jesus, it's important to us here today. And so um, let's stand now and let's read God's word together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul says this, So if there is any comfort, or if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come together. That is our prayer and that is our commitment to esteem one another above ourselves, to look out not just for our own interests, but the interests of others, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we know that we are united in Christ. We've been given the same uh, spirit, and we want to commit to having love and affection for one another. I pray that City Bible's united testimony would be brought together in Christ. Um and that we would be unified for the mission that you've given to us, unified in the testimony to the glory of God, unified in our love for one another. Uh, give us the grace, Lord, to live out what we know and what we want to be true about who the church should be in unity. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, right I'm a seat. Thank you. So we're talking about unity and disunity in the church today. It was an important topic throughout the uh, writers of the New Testament. And when you think about the topic of unity, just in normal life, you know when you see unity among people, among groups, we can immediately recognize that. Um, in your family, you know when there's unity. I was just talking with someone the other day. They said, uh, just yesterday, they said, how's my family doing? Another pastor. Uh, and I said, you know, I think my family's doing really good. You know, my children and my wife, uh, we're all unified in in, uh, what we're committed to, how we're getting along. Um, Sometimes you have bumps in the road in a family and a marriage, but overall, this season has been really, really good for our marriage and our children and our family, and we're unified. In sports, you can watch March Madness and see when a team is not unified in their strategy, when the other team is winning the game and, and just kind of disrupted the strategy. I was talking with, um, and you know when they're unified, they usually win the uh, the NCAA championship. I was talking with uh, Sebastian and Holland and uh, we went out to dinner this week with Peter and Yunji in Santa Monica and they were talking about how they're going into these final projects for their architecture school, and their groups were really unified in these final projects, but they also saw disunity among this one other group. They had been together like this entire semester, and they decided to break up, do their own thing, with a few weeks left um, because they couldn't get along and different, had different visions for their project. We can immediately recognize in life unity, and we can immediately recognize disunity when we look at the world around us. Ukraine and Russia is like the ultimate disunity that we see in this world. We see disunity in COVID, uh, even though we're coming out of it pretty much now. Uh, there's a lot of disunity: masks, no masks, certainly in politics. Uh, who are we going to elect? Who's the good bu- guy? Who's the bad guy? In life, you can immediately. Recognize when something is unified and something is experiencing disunity. There's no more more important area to experience unity than the area of the church. The church is the one organization. It's the one organism. It's the one gathering point in your life where there absolutely has to be unity. This was a priority to the Apostle Paul. He wrote to many churches, the church at Rome, Galatia, Corinth, and uh, Ephesus. I want to read to you some of the verses of why Paul kept emphasizing to all of these churches, you need to be unified. You need to be unified in your doctrine. You need to be unified in your relationships. You need to be unified in your mission. Paul wrote to the Roman church in Romans 15, verse 5 through 7. He said that we are, are to accept one another because Christ has accepted us, that we are to live in harmony with one another. And when we do that, we glorify our God, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote that to the Roman church. He wrote to the Galatian church in Galatians 5, verse 26, that no one in the church should be boastful or challenging or envying one another. That You should live in unity. He wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, that in Jesus Christ, we should be in agreement. We should have no division. And we should live with the same mind and the same judgment. He wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. And this is interesting because Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians uh, in this 12th chapter, he said that he did not, when he came to visit the Corinthian church for... Uh, the next time he visited them, he said he did not want to find them uh, in a way that he did not wish to find them. He did not want to find them in a way that they did not wish to be found in disunity. He did not want to find them in strife, jealousy, anger, having tempers, having disputes, slandering one another, gossiping one another. He didn't want to find them with arrogant attitudes and, and full of disturbances, he said. And what was interesting, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 here, when he was talking about the call to unity and the fear for disunity, he actually said in that passage that he was afraid. He was afraid that he would find the Corinthian church in disunity. He said in that chapter that he did not want to be humiliated before the Lord. That he was at, he would be mournful to find the Corinthians in disunity, afraid, humiliated, and mournful. That was Paul's concern. Do you know that when pastors like Paul was a pastor to uh, the Corinthian church? And when pastors see the flock that they're pastoring, or you could even say ministry leaders over a ministry, that when they see disunity, it affects them. They become fearful. They experience shame. Ministers become very sorrowful, very mournful. When they look at their church, either in doctrinal disunity or relational disunity. I know that for a fact. It's not just Paul. I've experienced that throughout my ministry. You know, I've been a pastor for 25 years. I've led different ministries, planted different churches, pastored different churches. And many times it is a great joy to pastors when they look out at their congregation and say, everyone's moving together. Everyone's committed to the same mission. Everyone, more or less, is getting along. Everyone is committed and hungry to learn the word of God. Brings great joy to a pastor. But when a pastor looks out and they see disunity, people saying having petty arguments, people having gossip and slander amongst each other, and it starts to spread throughout the congregation like gangrene. It deeply wounds the pastor. And I can say that uh, from personal experience. And then the church suffers. Why don't you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, for another exhortation of Paul before we get into our passage on unity. Just to give you a broad perspective on how Paul addressed this topic throughout the different churches before we come to Philippians. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, That, um, verse one through three. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul had to encourage the Ephesian church. He said, you need to be patient. You need to be gentle. You need to bear with one another in love. It's really hard in our society right now. We're so quick, you know, short attention spans. Need it now. And to bear, to labor with one another in love, in gentleness and in patience. We look at people, you annoy me. You know, uh, we we tend to look at people and, and instead of thinking the best of them, we tend to think the worst of them. And, um, you know, sometimes people can be annoying. <laughs> And sometimes people can't do things that bring out the worst in us and, and, and the worst in them. That's true. But that overall should be our commitment. That This is what it requires for church unity. Church unity is very important. Because when a church is unified doctrinally, when a church is unified relationally, it's a testimony to the power of the gospel. It's a testimony to the power of the gospel. You see throughout the writers of the New Testament. And um, they, they called the church to unity. They said, Jew and Gentile live in unity as a testimony to Christ. Rich and poor live in unity in the church as a testimony to Christ. Weak believers and strong believers live in unity as a testimony to Christ. Uh, the churches might have followed Paul or they might have followed a like in Corinth, they might have had people who didn't get along. But when a church is unified, uh, it's an incredible testimony to the power of who Christ is. Our world is not unified. That's why we have laws. That's why we have different political parties. That's why we, we have all of these systems in our world to kind of force people to get along. When people step into a church, what they are stepping into is a community of people who are not forced to be here. No one forced you to be here this morning. You made a choice to get up, to get dressed, have breakfast, to choose to be here to worship God with a bunch of other people that are not your relational family. And when you chose to do that, You chose to say, you know, I'm going to come together and we may not all have the same politics. We may not all have the same bank accounts. We may not all have grown up in church or maybe we didn't. We may have different skin color, but I'm choosing to be in community with you. I'm choosing to love you and to be in unity. And on top of that, we're choosing to be unified in who we follow. The world's not like that. The world is unified when there are laws for that. The world is unified when there's financial incentive for that. The world is unified when there's a reward in that for that, or a consequence if you're not. And the church is very unique. And so there's no other explanation for that than Christ. Unity is very important. When you have disunity in a church, it can wreck a church. Absolutely wreck it. How many of you, uh, we'll just kind of throw it out there, not just our church, but your entire church experience. How many of you have seen disunity in a church and it started to wreck either a ministry or wreck a church? Just put your hands up right now, whether you're talking about our church or another church, right? We have, many of us. I would say almost every one of us, whether we admit it or not. We have seen the, the the damaging effects of disunity on the church. Now, there are many reasons why disunity happens in the church. Uh, Paul, Jesus, they talk about many reasons. They talk about how sin spreads throughout a church and creates disunity. They talk about how false doctrine spreads throughout a church and creates disunity. There's relational strife that creates disunity. Chris uh, mentioned something important in his prayer. He said that when a church is committed to doing kingdom work, like the work of evangelism, oftentimes the enemy wants to kind of come in from the backside and create disunity because that church has now become a threat. When a church tries to expose darkness, the darkness of the evil one, the evil one will want to try and create disunity. When a church becomes slothful and complacent, it can experience disunity. And so today, when we look at this passage, we want to think about unity. We want to think about the unity that is brought together when we were saved by Jesus Christ. He put the same spirit within each one of us. When Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, he said, Father, I pray that they may, my believers may be one as we are one. That answer to that prayer in John 17 was answered the moment you became saved. When the Holy Spirit was placed in you at your salvation, and he's placed in me at salvation, Jesus' prayer in John 17 was not a prayer for denominational unity. It was a prayer that was answered the moment you became a Christian, because you were doctrinally, salvifically, unified with other believers. You became one with other believers in the moment you received the same Holy Spirit. And so when we think about unity today in our passage, we want to be thinking about what Christ has brought together, what the Holy Spirit indwells in is bringing us salvation unity. And we also want to think about our sanctification as believers. How can we live out of the truth that we are unified in the Holy Spirit how can we live that out in our behavior and our attitudes towards one another? And so in the Philippian church today, um, the Philippian church was a really good church. They did a lot of things right. They had good doctrine. They were loving. They were generous. They were courageous. They were hospitable. They were prayerful. We know all of that from this epistle uh, to the Philippians. They uh, were to be commended in many ways by Paul. But well, one of the areas that uh, they were struggling with was unity. And if you go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, uh, you see one of the uh, noteworthy examples of disunity in their church. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, Paul says he specifically mentions two women. And remember, uh, these are specific women at the church. And so this epistle would have been read to the church. This is literally like me standing up here and calling out two or three of you, saying that you are urged to get along from the pulpit. Paul is saying, and this would have been read to the Philippian church, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche. He's mentioning them by name to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So these women, Iodia and Syntyche, are believers. Paul knew them. They labored with him. And he's saying, I entreat, I beg, I encourage them to get along. We don't know why they were not getting along. And it's interesting that Paul did not go into all the details of why they were not getting along. But he says, I entreat them to get along. And he's actually now involving the church in this. Because he's calling it out In a more corporate way. In fact, Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, this is one of the reasons why he had said, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, why he said this Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm, what? In one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul knew that there was disunity in the church. And so he addresses that here in our passage. Um, when we look at the Philippian church, and we know of uh, Iodia and Syntyche, these two women that weren't getting along, it's interesting because what you realize is that disunity among a small group of people in a church can actually affect the entire church. Let me say that again. When we are talking about disunity, we are not talking about 50% is on this side, 50% is on that side. It normally does not start that way. It starts with a disagreement between an eodia. And a Syntaichi. And it starts to grow. And other people start to get pulled into it. And maybe that was no one's intent from the beginning. But as you're like, well, you know, this person says this. Well, you heard that? No, I hear this. No, I think you're wrong. No, you're saying that I'm wrong? And then it starts to grow and metastasize to other people. And you realize That disunity often starts small, and if it's not stopped quickly, if it's not addressed, if the people don't repent early on, the longer it goes on, the more people that get pulled into it, the worse it can get, and the bigger a threat it becomes to the church. This is not a... uh, there's not a Bible proverb or anything, but it's kind of just a leadership thing that um, I, I agree with. Um, I, I teach the leaders here at this church this, and it's a little parable that I heard. Um, and then I added this one other part to it. It says uh, it's the a parable of the, um, the men who come to the fire or the people who come to the fire. There's a fire that breaks out, small fire. And uh, the first person that comes and sees this small fire. They come in and uh they they have a pail of gasoline. And then they come to the fire and they throw the gasoline on it. And then the fire becomes way worse. The fire represents a problem. The person comes and there are some people that will come to a problem that could become disunion church, disuni, uh a disunifying element in the church, and they'll come to it and they'll throw gasoline on the problem. It just becomes worse. The second person comes to the fire and they um they have a pail of water. And they throw the pail of water on the fire, and the fire's out. It's done. And there are some people in the church, when they come to a problem that could create disunity in the church, they don't throw gasoline, make it worse. They actually are able to solve it in a godly way, and it's done. Obviously, you want to be that person. I, uh, I added a third person to this parable out of ministry experience. I think there's actually a third person. And the third person is not the gasoline. It's not the water. There's a third person who often comes to a fire in a church, and uh, they don't do either one. What they do is they look at the fire, and they go, wow, that's an amazing fire. I I don't want to get too close to that because that could burn me. So I'm going to watch it start to rage and rage into a. Oh, it's an inferno. Hey, we need help over here. It's an inferno now. And they just watch it happen. Which person are you? Gasoline, water. Watching. And you're going to find everyone falls into one of those three categories. And so, what Paul is trying to do here is he is trying to be the bucket of water person. He is trying to say, look, Sintaichi, Iodia, you women, you need to, whatever you need to do, get together, talk it out, pray it out. Get counsel from others. Get church intervention. Whatever it takes. Let's put this fire out before it becomes a Corinthian problem and there's chaos everywhere. Because you know what? Nobody wants to be at a church that's disunified. Certainly not visitors. They walk in and they see chaos So it's our responsibility for that. So we see that disunity can start with a small group of people. We see in this passage that the Apostle Paul is also calling for unity, and he's a leader. He's calling for unity, and he's a leader. Leadership has the responsibility to call for unity. They have the responsibility to look around and say, are we unified or are we not? And if we're not... It is our mental responsibility to call for that. Number three, what we see in this passage is that the Philippians were united. In verse 1, it says, Paul reminds the Philippians, if you have any encouragement in Christ, verse 1, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, and through that you have affection and sympathy, he's reminding the Corinthian church that the basis for unity is not reward, not financial gain. It is not uh, some kind of uh, government law where you get thrown into prison if you don't. It is that we are united in Christ. When believers are getting along, when the church is unified, it's a powerful thing. It's one of the greatest testimonies to the reality of Christ. It's one of the best testimonies to the power of the Holy Spirit. You walk into a church, you're all committed to learning the word of God. You walk into a church, and yeah, you know, people can have disagreements at times. We're all human. That's not the point. But overall, this church is moving in unity. People are excited to be there. They're excited for the work of God. When you're going out to do street evangelism, like Pastor Mike was talking about, a dozen people show up. When Earl's planning Lord, and the others, Chamberlain boys and, and Cynthia and others are planning Lord of the Games, we said, you know what, we're going to be unified in joining this effort to reach people. When we're having a prayer meeting at the church, we're saying, you know what, let's be unified in prayer, and on and on and on. When we need help with the children's ministry, etc., the youth ministry, etc., we're unified a powerful thing that is the type of church you want to be a part of you don't want to be a part of a church that it's just a bunch of stray cats going their own way but paul reminds us that that unity in verse one it comes from christ it comes to the holy spirit when you and i make the commitment to be in relational unity with other believers when you and I make the commitment to be in doctrinal unity with the church that we're at, what you're doing is you're glorifying God. What you're doing is you are testifying that Jesus is real in your life. What you are doing is you are saying, I am submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. So unity is not just a goal. It is a gospel issue. Is an issue of the glory of God. And so Paul uh goes on to say here, he says in verse 2, It's going to bring him joy when he sees them of the same mind, same love, being a full accord and one of one mind. That brings me joy as a pastor. Just like Paul said here complete my joy by being of one mind, one purpose, etc., one spirit. I look out and I see. Our church, for the most part, is pretty unified. We have our moments, and I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of you as a church. I'm really proud of the way you guys serve. I'm really proud of the way you guys care for one another. I'm really proud of, of your, your embrace of the truth of God's word. I'm really proud of that you guys care about... Uh, Those who are the outcasts, the poor, those who are in need, whether it's inside the body of Christ or outside the body of Christ, I'm really proud that you care about people who don't know Christ. And one of the main reasons why I have great joy as a pastor is when I see us in unity. Um, And so same thing for Paul here. And he says in verse 3 some negative things. He says it in a positive way, but it's actually an admonition to not be, have these attitudes. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Some of your translations might say vain conceit. Let's stop there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit or in vain conceit. Verse three. It's not wrong to be ambitious. You should be ambitious for the things of God. What's wrong is to be selfishly ambitious. You should be insanely ambitious for the things of God. Insanely ambitious to accomplish the work of God, to care for the people of God, to pursue God. In that, you should be the most ambitious people on the planet. But what Paul is talking about, that you're hardworking, you're a soldier, you're a farmer, you're, you're, uh, Uh, Someone who, an athlete, as he talked about in 2 Timothy. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer, work hard. They are very ambitious. But they're ambitious for the right reasons. What Paul's warning here is when people become, verse 3, selfishly ambitious. And you can find both types of people in the church. You can find people who are ambitious for the things of God because they want to glorify God. They want to help the church. They want to grow in their faith. Not only is there nothing wrong with that, that is what you should pursue. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3. But you can also find people that are selfishly ambitious in the church. What does selfishly ambitious, what does people who are conceited in the church look like? Those type of people, and they do exist, are people who want the power in the church without the personal spiritual transformation of Christ. They want to be in positions of leadership. They want to be in position of decision-making without having the humility of Christ, without being under the, the, uh, the influence of the Holy Spirit. These people are selfishly ambitious and are full of vain conceit. These are the people who, in ministry, always have to have their way, always know better than others. And they exist in every church. And he says in verse three, the opposite though, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is not a prayer request. It is a choice. In the Bible, people do not pray for humility. The command is simply what? Be humble. You don't have to pray to God to make you more humble. In fact, you probably don't want that. See, when you choose to be humble, that is called humility. When you ask God to humble you, that is called humiliation. It is in your best interest to humble yourself and to choose to be humble rather than wait for God to humble you and humiliate you. Because when God has to step in, when we look at Israel, when we look at the people who stood in Jesus' ways, they get humiliated and it happens publicly. Save yourself that shame. It's always better all like 99% of the time, you guys. It's 99% of the times better when you discipline yourself rather than have, wait for God to discipline you. It's almost always better to choose to be humble than to wait for God to humble you. And He will, He will. I have noticed throughout my entire life when I've got a little too, you know, uppity, a little bit too arrogant, a little too prideful. That's not just talking about ministry; it's just talking about life. You know, hey, there's nothing wrong with being having a good sense of pride over good work. That's not what we're talking about. There's not, nothing wrong with saying good job to your kids, and and that's okay. Without saying, oh no, but you need to see yourself as a sinner. I can't say good job. We're not talking about that. Every time I've noticed, where I've really gone through a season where I've gone a little too. And you know, maybe other people don't. I know it though, right? God humbles me. He has a thousand different ways that He can humble you. It can come out of nowhere. Something you thought was going to happen, you were counting. It get you get a rug pull, a health issue. I'm not saying all health issues are God's discipline, I'm not saying that at all. An accident. You know? Something that just he can and you just know. You're like, you know what? <laughs> uh I, I think this is what's happening. And and you're like, Man, why didn't I do that? Maybe I could have avoided that. Now if those things happen or and you're not being prideful, at least you can say, Okay, well, you know, it wasn't because of me shooting myself in my own foot. So humility is a choice. It's not a prayer request. And he says, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is best defined in relationship to other people. We can think we're humble. And we know how deceptive our minds are. Uh, when he says After, in humility, the next thing he says, count others more significant than yourselves. There's a reason for that. Humility is best expressed and defined in relationship to others. You want to know if you're humble? Go see if you're esteeming others better than yourself. Want to know if you're humble? Do we obey the entire book or only the parts of the book that we like? In our relationship to God. We want to know if we're humble to God. Are we willing to submit to everything it's saying? If we want to know if we're humble to others, why don't you, why don't we ask? I, I had a, we had a conversation on the car right over today. You know, we we're driving over and we're rushing out the door, right? And, uh, Lorraine, can't hear me right now, so I can say this. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, she'd actually, you'd actually like what I'm about to say, Lorraine, even though you're in the building. And Lorraine, uh, rightfully so, rightfully so, she gave all of us a lecture for about 10 minutes in the car about how messy we were. Disorganized. And, you know, I'm agreeing with her. I was like, you know, mommy's right. You know, she's right. And We need to do this. And I, I was in the car the other day cleaning out twice. I found food in the back, etc. Yeah, you gotta get your, And then so I'm agreeing with her. You know, sometimes you think when you're agreeing with the person, then you know you gotta get off the hook because they're gonna see you as an ally, right? And then she goes, "But I want to say one more thing, and it has to do with you." And she's pointing at me. And I, do, I knew that I was not gonna emerge unscathed. And so the best thing to do in those moments is keep your mouth shut. Um, and uh, she says, "Your room has been so messy for so long." And, you know, I've asked you so many times. And then she goes, you know, it's because you're stubborn. It's because you're prideful. And you don't care. I've said this to you so many times. Now, you can listen to that. And I could think, I'm an adult, man. You're telling me to clean my room. Okay, I'm not a teenager. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so let me finish. Let me finish. Okay, so there's some validity to that at some level. But then I thought, you know, she's right. She's right. And so I said, you know what, Lorraine, I don't want any arguments from you. I am committing myself this. I'm going to clean up this room. I don't want you to tell me. Don't do it this week. I'm going to do it this week. Okay, I'm committed to that. I don't want any arguments. It's going to happen this week. You hold me to that. It's going to happen. I'm enlisting the kids to help me. Okay. When she said to me this morning, I was being stubborn. I thought of this passage. And the great thing about having the Holy Spirit of truth inside of you, He convicts your conscience immediately. I can make all my arguments I want at the end of the day. She's right. I was being stubborn. And when she said that, it hit me in a different way. I go, you know what? You're right. I'm being prideful and I'm being stubborn. Uh, I don't know why I didn't look at it that way before. And I said, instant repentance. We're going to fix that this week. Okay. So you ask me next week, right? About what that happened. But, or you don't have to. You can just trust, right? Let your yes be yes. Um, but humility is measured against other people. Do other people see us as stubborn, stiff necked? What we often think is being independent and having a mind of our own. The Bible often def- defines being independent and having a mind of your own. The Bible often defines that as being stubborn, stiff necked, and unteachable. And so he goes on to say, Um, verse 4 our last verse for today let each of you look out not only for your own interests but also to the interests of others you want to know how to have unity look out not just for your own interests but the interests of others what does that look like Um, I think for me uh what that looks like is when I'm blessed by something, let's say I receive something that's more than I need. You can talk about financially. If I receive something financially it's more than I need. If I receive some other kind of material thing. Nowadays, I'm asking myself, do I really need all this blessing? It's nothing wrong with being blessed. But do I really need this abundance of blessing? And um, oftentimes, I'm asking myself now the question of, if I'm blessed, how can I bless others? How can I look out not just for my own interests, but the interests of others? Verse 4, if I'm blessed, how do others get blessed? Or how do others get blessed even when I'm not blessed? Even better. I'm working on that one, too. This is the key to church unity. Follow me on this, you guys. Iodia and Syntaiche were these these closed loop human beings. They were these these um, centralized human beings that were full of vain conceit, that were full of selfish ambition. And what Paul is saying here, follow me on this, in these verses, is he saying. The problem in the human heart, in the church, is when we start to not just look out for our own interests, become conceited, sometimes we don't even see it that way, but it is, sometimes the body of Christ has to remind us, when we pursue selfish ambition and the Holy Spirit's no longer in control. See, what Paul is trying to do here is he's saying, look, get out of that closed loop way of looking at your life. Get into community with the church. And when you're in community with the church, look out for the interests of others. Consider others higher than yourself. And what that will do is it will address your vain conceit. It will address your selfish ambition. And follow this, it will allow the Holy Spirit to now move freely. Because you and I are now out of the way of the work of the Holy Spirit. Our pride, our stubbornness, our vain conceit, our selfish ambition grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit cannot work in our lives. The moment we say, I'm going to humble myself, consider you better than myself, I'm going to look out for your interests. Now it's a form of repentance. The Holy Spirit can now move to create the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I think that's the spiritual dynamic Paul is getting to. I'm going to close with this. Um, he's talking about unity in the church, but I do need to say a, a quick word about examples of when you should not be unified. As a believer, you're not not to be unified with others in every single circumstance. There are actually circumstances when you as a believer are not called to unity. You are called to disunity. What are those examples? Um, Paul talks elsewhere about examples. Like when you see other believers who are in long-term patterns of unrepentant, egregious sin. I'm not talking about a situation where a brother has fallen you're bearing with them and, and trying to help them. I'm not talking about that. That's legitimate. I'm talking about circumstances where, uh, like Paul talked about in the Corinthian church, a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law and he was unrepentant and celebrating it. You are not to be unified with those types of believers who are living in long-term, unrepentant, egregious sin, who are not responding in any way to repentance, to any biblical instruction. You're not to be in, with, in unity with them. You're actually to avoid them. He talks about being unequally yoked. Secondly, unequally yoked with other believers who um, are un- well, actually with unbelievers. Second Corinthians chapter 7. He talks about do not be unequally yoked. Chap- chapter 6 and chapter 7 with unbelievers. You are not to be unified. If you are a believer... You should not be marrying an unbeliever. I was just having this conversation with Lorraine this week, someone at her homeschooling group who was a ministry leader in another organization that you'd all hear heard about, said to Lorraine, yeah, you know, you shouldn't, but, you know, you shouldn't have a believer marry an unbeliever. But she really wasn't saying it's it's to not do it. It's not ideal, but no, the the Bible says that's merging together Satan and God. So you're not to be in unity with long-term, egregious, sinful believers. You're not to be in unity with unbelievers in any kind of spiritual enterprise where, like, like marriage, etc. But Paul does talk about in Philippians specifically. He says there were enemies of the cross. In Philippians chapter one, verse 28 through 30, I want to read that, uh, those three verses, but he said that there were enemies that he was not unified with. He told the Philippian church, do not be frightened by your opponents, that you are engaged in conflict with them. Philippians 1, verse 28 through 30. You should not be unified with your enemies who are persecuting. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't come to the Pharisees and the Romans saying, I'm unified with you as you send me to the cross. I love, you know, I'm with you. Let's just be brothers. No, he was not unified with them in any way. And Paul, lastly, he also talks in Philippians about false teachers. We're not to be unified with false teachers. It says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, that these false teachers taught false doctrine. He called them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, enemies of the cross whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in shame, with minds set on earthly things. Philippians chapter 3 verse 2, 3, 18, and 19. So it requires discernment. We want to be unified in our common commitment to Christ and the Holy Spirit. We want to be unified as a church as we come together, esteeming one another better than ourselves and looking out for others' interests. But we do not want to be unified with those believers, professing believers, who are not living a life of holiness, a long-term life of holiness in the worst ways. We do not want to be unified with unbelievers in a spiritual enterprise such as marriage. We do not want to be unified with enemies of the cross. And we do not want to be unified with false teachers. So it requires discernment. But I think uh, we're going to be fine here at this church. We're going to be good because we are unified. Like Chris said in the prayer, there's going to be attacks that will come our way because our church is a threat to the dark kingdom. Not every church is, but our church is. We're trying to lead people to Christ. We're trying to expose the darkness with the truth and the light. trying to help those who are suffering. We're a threat. And so leaders especially, if you start to see disunity... Be the person with the water pail, not the gasoline, not the person watching the thing burn down to the ground. And um, God's going to use our church tremendously. All right, let's pray together. Fathers, we come together as we close now in worship. We are united in worshiping you as our Heavenly Father, brought together by Christ having the person of the Holy Spirit within us. We pray that City Bible Church would have a united testimony, a united commitment to the work of God, that we would be united relationally. If there is anything brewing at our church right now that would create doctrinal unity or relational disunity, Lord, I pray that those individuals would be in agreement, would find a way to come to agreement as a testimony to their faith. I pray that um, there would be repentance where there needs to be repentance. There would be conviction. There would be an embrace of holiness and a commitment to the wider testimony of the body of Christ. So, Lord, I know that you will do that for City Bible Church because you love her. You love the people here because we are your children. That is your desire. And we believe it to be so in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and stand. We'll close and worship.